0: Good morning everyone. Thank you for uh, making it here today. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's exciting and uh, um, it's, it's wonderful just to be spending time with you in the presence of the Lord uh, this morning. Uh, it really is a, a joy and a privilege. So we're, uh, we have a lot to cover this morning so I'm going to jump straight in. Um, and uh, our our one thing for this morning is that we prefer false idols that we can control to a real God that we cannot control. Um, we prefer false idols that we can control to a real God we cannot control so last Sunday in our seventy day Bible reading challenge, we discovered. Uh, in Revelation chapter five, verse nine, the nature and the character of the one who is worthy of opening the seven seals of the scroll, and and we found out that this word that the only one that's worthy is the one is the Lamb of God. You know that Lamb with His throat slit, and this Lamb of God laid down His life for the sins of the world. So He's the one that earned His worthiness by being the sacrificial Lamb. That's our starting point for what we will be looking at here today. And now this this. This morning, just so that you have an idea where, where we're going, we're going to do a high level pass over Revelations chapter 6 through 10. Then we're going to swoop around at a lower altitude and get, um, And and look at it in a little more depth. And then we're going to touch down our airplane of exposition on a couple of verses. And I would encourage you to have your Bible open so that you are able to follow along. Because as you turn your pages and read along with me, it will help you focus and it will help you keep up. And since mostly what I'm doing is a summary using either my own words or the words of someone else, reading along with the Word of God itself will allow God's word to speak to you, okay? So if you don't have a Bible open, uh, find a Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 6. This is the high-level overview, the high-level summary. Chapter 6 takes place in heaven. It's a vision of the Lamb opening the first six of seven seals on this scroll. And each of these... Um, seals reveals future events then chapter 7 brings us down to earth we were in heaven now we're on earth and it shows us the start of the reward for those who suffered and those who died for Jesus then chapter 8 moves us from earth back up into heaven again the seventh seal is open which then kicks off the first four trumpet judgments and then chapter 9 shows us the fifth trumpet judgment, which are these kind of weird, psychedelic, super scary locust creatures, and then the sixth trumpet judgment, which is this mounted hellish army, Um, and then we get on to chapter 10 that introduces us to this second scroll, this little scroll that contains seven thunders, but we don't know what they say, uh, because... You know, John's told to lock them up, and then John is, but John is told to keep on prophesying and uh, not to stop speaking. And so that's a very high level overview of Revelation 6 through 10. Now let's circle back to Revelation chapter 6 for a lower pass. Okay, so in chapter 6, the lamb who was slain in chapter 5, opens up the first four seals on the scroll that ushers in the end of time. And, and, it, and we're introduced to this well-known concept of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And, uh, and as the lamb opens each seal, um, three things happen, or, 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 or four things happen. One of the four living creatures that we met in chapter 4, verse 7, says, Come or go. It could also be translated. And after this creature has said, come, a horse then appears with a rider on it, and then there's a judgment. So this happens four times. Now, the first horse and rider are white. Everyone say white. And they ride out to conquer. Think massive military power. Now, the second horse and rider are red. Everyone say red. And they ride out to replace peace with war. Uh, The third horse and rider are black. Everyone say black. And they cause famine, massive world shortage of food, massive hike in food prices, as verse 6 tells us. Then the fourth seal opens and a horse and rider come out that are the color uh, of pale. So everyone say pale. And as a result of this, um, there is, uh, and these represent uh, death and the grave. So um, if we were to interpret these four horses as a result of war and famine, we're told that one quarter of the population of the world will die now to John's original readers in the Roman empire these four horsemen could easily have represented the frightening parthian or persian armies that these kind of barbarian hordes that were waiting to sweep in on civilization and bring their you know their entire world to an end and so you know it was a bit like you know this symbol of fear you know that uh, that they would have latched onto straight away now in our days, we don't have the Parthian army or the barbarian hordes waiting to race in on us. But we don't have to look far in the news to see war zones and famine and, and, and the threat of nuclear and chemical warfare. In fact, one author says this. This is an author writing pre-2000. Um, so, so they said this, that this century was an open-mouthed grave grave. Hitler's six million Jews, Stalin's twenty million, Mao's tens of millions, Pol Pot's um, uh, two million, Rwanda's one million, and apartheid's millions. Okay, that's so many people lost their lives in that century, and it's not been much better in this century either. Now, one commentator draws a parallel between the seal judgments and Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verse 6. Feel free to turn there if you want, but I'll read it anyway. So, so there's this... Connection here. And what Jesus says is, is this. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but still the end is to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And then Jesus ends by ends, uh, this passage by saying, all of these are the beginning of birth pains. Okay, so it's the start then the fifth seal opens and we're introduced to these martyrs, to these witnesses of Jesus, those who've paid the ultimate price for their faith with their lives. And then the sixth seal opens in verse 12 and it's like the breakdown or unraveling of creation itself and people are terrified. They're absolutely terrified and they want to hide into hiding caves, and they yell to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Now that's not just a rhetorical question because chapter 7 verse 3 tells us who can withstand the wrath of the Lamb, and the answer is those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. Let me pause there and uh, just allow myself to be a little bit honest. Recounting Revelation is not easy for me uh, because maybe more than many books in the Bible, it shows us a God of love and a God who is holy. It shows us a God who is merciful and a God who is just. And we like to focus on the love and the mercy, right? But one day... When time runs out, if we've not made our peace with God through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, then it will be too late. That's 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 one of the big themes of Revelation. Now this author Brian Metzger explains you know the judgments of Revelation six through 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 ten very well, and and so these are his his words, Brian Metzger. He says this: these disasters are the results of the working out of, sorry, these disasters are the results of the working out of God's righteous laws for the universe. He then says this, God does not approve of famine and death and hell, but they are what must follow if people persist in opposing God's rule. God wills community, which is the consequence of caring and love. He, he, He then says this, ignoring physical laws like stepping off a cliff, or ignore physical laws like stepping off a cliff and disaster follows neglect moral laws, and disaster ensues just as surely. The woes described here are the result of not taking seriously God's command to achieve community and justice. God does not will the woes, but as long as we're free agents, God allows them. He then ends his quote by saying this, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, a brilliant little vignettes that show what happens in the sphere of politics, of military action, and of economics whenever men and women oppose the will of God, end quote. Some challenging but helpful words there. Now, you'll notice in chapter six that there are seven seals, and then in chapter um, Sorry, in chapter six, there are six seals, and then in chapter eight and nine, the seventh seal is opened, followed by the six trumpets, the first six trumpet judgments. And then the seventh trumpet judgment is blown in chapter ten, and then in chapter sixteen, there are these seven bowl judgments. How do we understand these seven, you know, six of one, one that leads into the six of the next? which has one at the end, which then leads into the sixth of the next. Well, one, one commentator writes this, and I think it's helpful because we can either view them as consecutive, one after the other, or we can view them happening at the same time, or we can view them kind of like as a telescoping thing. And uh, this is what this commentator writes. He says, I believe that there is a telescopic relationship to the judgments with each successive series coming out of the last of the former in other words, the seventh seal is the, is the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls, okay? Have you managed to wrap your head around that? It's a little bit, let me uh, explain it like this. It's a bit like opening a Russian nesting doll, and there are seven smaller Russian nesting dolls inside, and you remove them one by one. The last Russian nesting doll, you open and there's another seven little Russian nesting dolls inside that one. That's kind of um, how we can understand this. Okay, so we've had, so as a recap, we've had the first six seals of the scroll open. And now in chapter 7, we're given this image of four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And in verse 3, they paused the destruction, until the people who are serving God are marked on their foreheads. Now, this is a, like I said last week, most of the references uh, and the symbols, the things that cause us to scratch our heads um, that take place in the book of Revelation, we can find answers to back in the Old Testament. And this is a reference to Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 4 that, that, that reads like this. Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done in it. And in Revelation chapter 6, we're told, uh, no, sorry, 7. Revelation chapter 7, we're told that there are 144,000 people who are marked or sealed. Now, again, this is a symbolic number uh, which signifies uh, completeness, which means that God will not miss anyone who chooses Him. We we then move from this vision of Earth up to a vision of Heaven uh, to this uncountable crowd of people from every nation. So we had the one hundred forty-four thousand on Earth. Now we have this uncountable crowd up in Heaven from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which reminds us, if you were here last week, of Revelation chapter five, verse nine. And this crowd that's uncountable, they're all worshipping. And the angels are worshipping. And the four living creatures are worshipping, representing all of um, nature, everything that God has made. And the songs that they're singing in Revelation 6 are incredible. Verse 10 is, is just one of their hymns which they're singing. It says, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. And then verse 12 is another song. Amen, praise and glory, wisdom and thanks, honor and power and strength to our God forever and ever. And then we find out in verse 14 that this crowd of white-robed people are those who've come out of, of some sort of a tribulation, some sort of a trouble. It's, it's been, life has been hard. They've, they've been persecuted for their faith and they held on to jesus through the good times and the bad times and their reward is face-to-face time with jesus himself and they worship him and then like i prayed verse 17 tells us that jesus the lamb will be their shepherd isn't that amazing that jesus the lamb will be their shepherd and what that means is that in life, they trusted Jesus as the good shepherd of Psalm 23, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. In fact, not just the valley of the shadow of death, but the valley of death itself. And they trusted him that he would lead them to still water. And now this, this, now this good shepherd, who is the lamb that was slain, is leading them to springs of water that give life. Verse 17. Then we move on to, well, actually, let's all, Let's all pause and breathe. Let's take three deep breaths. Another one. And one more. Good. Chapter 8. We then move from this heavenly interlude back to earth where the Lamb who was just leading the faithful to streams of water is also opening the seventh seal. And it says that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I love this, uh, because what does that even mean? There was silence in heaven for half an hour. Was someone timing it? Did he have a stopwatch? I mean, what, you know, was he doing one Mississippi, two Mississippi? No, because then it wouldn't have been silence. They'd have told him to shut up. But there was silence in heaven for half an hour. You could have heard a pin drop. All those songs that were being sung in chapter 7 are now stopped in awe, in worship, and in suspense, which means that something is coming. And friends, there are times in life when God is up to something and the best thing for us to do is to temporarily pause on the questions, even if it's only for a little while. We put our objections on hold. We, we uh, pause our rebuttals. We just have silence, being still and knowing that God is God, that he will be exalted in all the earth. Now the seven angels with the seven trumpets are standing there. Then another angel comes, verse 3, with a golden fire pan like they'd have used in Old Testament worship to burn incense. Now the incense from the fire pan mixes in with the prayers of, this, of the martyrs of the persecuted church and it rises to God himself. Then the angel mixes in fire with this incense and throws it down to earth where it manifests as thunder, as lightning and as earthquakes, also known as natural disasters then the first angel blows on his trumpet and a third of the earth burns up including the grass verse 7 then the next three angels blow their trumpets and specific aspects of life on earth are impacted first there's something like a volcanic explosion um, in verse 8 and this destroys one third of the sea and its creatures and the ships so trade uh, international trade is impacted hugely then there's some kind of a Meteorite type thing that falls to earth and makes one third of the fresh water undrinkable, like the first Egyptian plague. Then the fourth angel blows his trumpet, and the celestial beings, the sun, the moon, and the stars, they are struck. And then in verse thirteen, an eagle comes on the scene and cries out, Woe, 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 not woe as in she looks good, but woe as in. Something bad is on its way, W-O-E. Whoa, 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 because things are about to get a lot worse, as verse 13 tells us. So on to chapter 9. The fifth trumpet blows, and a star or an angel falls, perhaps Satan, from heaven, and he's given the key to the the abyss, which is like a bottomless pit. Uh, He then opens this up, and smoke comes out of this kind of... You know, never-ending pit in the ground, and uh, it turns the the whole of the atmosphere dark. Now, this smoke is followed by these horrendous locusts that reminds us of the eighth plague in the book of Exodus. And and these locusts, even though they are horrendous and uh, they are absolutely gruesome. They, they don't have full rain, and God puts a rain on them and says that you will not harm the vegetation or the people with the mark of the lamb on their forehead, but they are given the right and the permission to torment people on earth for four, five months, which is about the lifespan of a locust. Now, To the first century Roman, these images would have brought to mind the almost nightmare images that they'd connected with these barbarian hordes um, from Persia, from Parthia, waiting to unravel civilization itself. And then the sixth trumpet blows in verse 13, and a voice comes from the altar saying, Free the four angels who are tied at the great river Euphrates. Now, interestingly... The Euphrates was marked the eastern border of the Roman Empire, and it was beyond the eastern border that that the Empire of Persia was, or Parthia. And and these were the this was the only military power who had decisively defeated Roman armies, and which Roman which Rome feared. Um, now, 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 now these angels. Release this hellish horse army of 200 million that kills one-third of the population of Earth. And one writer writing about this says, although it has often been fashionable to sneer at the idea of one-third of the Earth and waters and lights being being destroyed, the moral relevance of Revelation is obvious to those who live with the greenhouse effect and the nuclear arms race. And then this writer carries on and says that the very materialism that John describes in chapter 9, verse 20, may destroy God's creation. So there are many layers to read this on, right? And then verse 20 of chapter 19 reads like this. The the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. So I want to come. I want to return to this verse in a minute. So keep your finger in verse twenty of chapter nine. But let me just really briefly summarize verse t- uh, chapter ten, and then we'll and then we'll return. So this angel comes down from heaven and stands astride the earth and you know on the sea, and he has this scroll raised in his hand, and uh, he opens this scroll, and this scroll contains seven thunders. Now these seven thunders are locked up. All of the others, we have been able to see what they are. But the seven thunders are locked up, so we don't know what they are. There's mystery here. And then this angel declares after the seventh trumpet, which we presume contains the seven bold judgments of chapter 16, that there will not be any more, more prophecies. And then in verse 9 of chapter 10, John is told to eat this scroll, to also which means to internalize the word. Don't just be hearers of the word but doers also And, 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 and this word, this scroll that John eats, it tastes rather bitter because it's a message of judgment but it will also be sweet as honey because it heralds the salvation of God's people and then John is told after eating it to prophesy again about many peoples, nations languages and tongues and that kind of sums up our summary of chapters 6 through 10 Um, Now I want to land our plane on verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9. Please turn to it in your Bibles. And these verses read like this. I've just read it, but I'll I'll read it again because it's important that we hear it. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So that's S from our acronym SOAP. Now O for, for observation. What do we observe in these verses? Firstly, this is what... I took from this if we've experienced the saving grace of Jesus then this passage should break our hearts because this pe- this passage is telling us that there will be many many people who refuse God who refuse Jesus and who have to, have to pay the price and I I, I and these verses actually tell us that, you know, the goal of the judgments, and here's a key thing, because we wonder, why was, why was God, you know, why was he doing this? Why was he sending these, you know, these uh, seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments and then the bowl judgments? Why is he doing it? Well, it, well the answer is here in, verse, in chapter 9, verse, v- verse 20. Uh, we are told that the goal of these judgments was to move people to repentance, at that moment, or at this moment, people have the choice to know Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. But there, will be a, but there will come a time when they can no longer know him as sacrificial lamb. They can only know him as the sovereign Lord. And a key verse to help us understand this is Second Peter 3 verse 9, which reads like this. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Okay, so he stands outside of time. He's, he's not restricted like we are. And then it says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So we learn from there that Jesus is going to keep that door open as long as he can. He will wait and he will wait and he will wait because he doesn't want anyone, anyone, to perish. But then that moment will come when the door of the ark is closed, when the, when the chance to have this intimate relationship with him through Christ is over. The option to know him as sacrificial lamb is done. Now now we can only know him as the sovereign Lord. We had the chance to know his grace. Now we can only know him in his holiness. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, "You know, we either say to God, your will be done, or God says to us, your will 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 be done now these people in Revelation chapter nine verse 20, who were still alive, whether what we read was literal or symbols of a reality they'd seen it all happen they'd lived through these tribulations they'd, they'd lived through these hardships God had spared those who were still who still had a chance of resp- responding to him and yet still they were unrepentant they'd hardened their hearts to the point that repentance was now not a possibility not because of God but because of them they still worship demons they still worship their idols you know I don't understand this you've seen all this happen And yet you still choose to worship an idol that you made with your own hands. And they still murdered. They still did their magic arts. They still engaged in sexual immorality and thefts. And what that tells me, as I observe, is that these people had a crust around their hearts that not even God was able to break. I tell you, brethren, if mercies and if judgments do not convert you, God has no other arrows In his quiver. These words are from Robert Murray McShane. I tell you, brethren, if mercies and if judgments do not convert you, then God has no other arrows in his quiver. So let's move on to the A. Let's try to apply this passage. Friends, if you were saved into a life with Christ, then you aren't saved to be comfortable. You are saved to proclaim. And this passage, these chapters, create a sense of urgency in the heart of the believer. In um, Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says this, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Now this, Romans chapter 9 verse 1, this is the heart of someone who knows what they have been saved to and what they have been saved from. Paul's passion and zeal for the saving of his people is so strong and so overwhelming that he wishes he could pass his salvation onto them. But the ticket is non-transferable. And as I, uh, as I try to apply these passages, they also cause us to wrestle with the image of God, particularly with the image of Jesus that we've created in our minds. These Chapters paint Jesus as the overcomer, as the Lord, as the supreme. He is is the God that even evil and wickedness needs to get the okay from in order to move. And what I learned from this is this, that God knows what it will take to bring you to saving faith in him. God knows what will tip you over the edge into turning to him. God will do whatever is necessary to bring you into relationship with him. He's already proved this on the cross and he proves this in Revelation 6 through 10. We have this image in our mind that somehow God owes us a comfortable, trouble-free life, spared of hardship or trouble, but that's not the witness of Scripture. I've spent much of this week with a heavy heart wanting to communicate God as revealed in Revelation 6 through 10 faithfully. And, uh, and, and really, it... it It's written here to draw those who don't know God to him and to send those who do know God out to those who don't know him with the message of salvation because the stakes are high. That's what Revelation 6 through 10 tells us. But if I was to sum up today's message, you know, chapter 6 through 10, and then focusing on verse, uh, chapter 9, verse, verse 21, I would say this as, as it's on the screen. People prefer false idols who they can control to a real God who they cannot control. And that's the heart of the matter here. Are we going to worship a God of our own making who is no God at all? If you're worshiping a God that does not um, encapsulate revelation then you're not worshiping God you're worshiping an idol of your own making or will we allow you know the Bible to reveal to us the God who is true who loves us and who will one day judge the world and who is worthy of our worship let me conclude with one final quotation from Bruce Metzger and he writes this in chapter 6, 12 through 17, John depicts the abject terror with which the unfaithful and the disobedient will encounter God and his Christ on that great day. In chapter 7, 9 through 17, John depicts those um, who will be able to stand before God and the Lamb. Those who've been faithful in their obedience and their witness in the midst of the challenges of this life. And then he he writes this, the twin portraits pose an implicit question to John's hearers and readers in every day, in every age. And the question is this, how do you wish to encounter God and the Lamb on that great day? How, How does your answer to this question illumine the choices and the challenges that you must face now, today? Let's pray. Lord, I sometimes flinch when, I, when, when reading these acts of divine power and judgment. Yet even in these, your heart is that people would wake up and repent and turn to you from what is false. Lord, keep me repenting of the work of my hands, my own efforts to save myself. Keep me from idol worship, even making you into an idol, and instead teach me how to turn to the one true God. May my life's goal and aim be to lead people to you and to demonstrate the mercy of the cross and the power of the life change that can only be found in you. Show me how to build my life on you and you alone.